are finishing up this uh, Abraham series, which I'm so grateful for. And uh, as you know, um, Calvary is one of four churches in the Bay Area has been going through this material and staring at the life of Abraham, this incredible life, this seminal character. And I'm so grateful um, to be here. I was on, I've been on video, but I've never been here in person with you guys. So I'm so grateful. Um, and also, uh, I was just, Sarah Lee's here. Sarah was uh, my editor. She helped me write this book. And so um, that was two years ago. Yeah, so Sarah's here. Uh, two years ago, I sat down with our lead pastor and I said, hey, I have an idea. Then COVID hit. And last January, we started working on it. So this has been a long time coming. And this is, of course, the reason, and just to recapitulate why Abraham is important, again, the subtitle of the book is A Field Guide to Loving God. As my children got older, my son now is 16, he's a junior, my daughter is 13, she is a freshman in high school, no, she's 14, sorry, I don't even know, I have, it's tough to keep up, and so I have a freshman and a junior, and as they prepared to, you know, leave the house, I wanted to give them uh, an actionable definition. We talk all the time about what it means to love God, love one another, love your neighbor. But what does it mean to love God? This word is mushy. Love God, like the word love in English is weird. Like I love my mom and I love tacos. It's just weird. So what does it mean? I wanted to give them an actionable definition. It was both biblical and robust. And even the word God's mushy, right? In the Bay Area, if you say, I believe in God, I mean, you gotta really define that stuff because people have all sorts of opinions about what God might look like and often it's exactly what they think. And God exactly loves exactly the things they love and exactly hates the people they exactly hate. And that's a good indication that you've made God in your own image. Anyway, the point is, how do we even diagnose this? How do we even know? And remember the, the famous uh, cartoon, The Grinch, that stole Christmas, and they measure him, and his heart's three sizes too small, you know? Maybe there, if there was only a device that could help us see how well we're doing at loving God that could measure our hearts, oops, it's a little bit too small. Remember later in the story, of course, his heart had grown, and it was three sizes bigger. That would be great, but there's no such device. Uh, so I wanted, to, I wanted to have something that would help me uh, not just for myself, but also for my children as they go into the world. How, how do you know if you're on track? I wanted a compass. I know that I can't give my children a map. You don't get a map, do you? There's no way to predict or know what life is going to throw at you. There's just no way. I wish there were. I wish I could give every single one of you a map so that you could navigate through the valleys and the mountains. But God does not give us a map, but he does give us a compass. He does give us some diagnostics to help us. And the life of Abraham is a way to look at this. So we've looked at the past couple weeks at these four core things just to quickly review them. First of all, the diagnostic that Abraham gives us that his life shows us is that loving God means being loyal even if it costs you. The word that we toyed with using was the word allegiance because the word allegiance implies that there's a king. But loyal works as well. Loyal is about a relational commitment. And, and this text, of course, if you'll remember, when, when Abraham is called, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household. And Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, this is a place where they worshiped all sorts of other gods and other idols. And Abraham enters into that land, and the text says, as a sign of respect of these local gods, Abraham made an altar to the Canaanite gods, 
Oh, wait, no, it doesn't. It says he made an altar to the Lord. So in a land full of foreign gods that pulled on him for his allegiance, Abraham says, I will worship no other God save this Yahweh. And we are people who live in lands of foreign gods, and we must be people whose allegiance and loyalty is to God and God alone. The second thing we learn from the life of Abraham, of course, is that we must trust God, that loving God means trusting him even when life doesn't make sense. And for Abraham, there's a lot of moments when life does not make sense. And for us, there will be moments when life does not make sense. There are quite a few things that don't seem to make sense. And yet, Abraham continues on. Do you remember that moment when God calls Abraham? The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. This is terrible. We do not like it when God says, go to the place I will show you. We want God to tell us where we're going so that we can retain veto power. We do not like it when God tells us to do something and he's the one in control. We like to be the ones in control so that we can tell God whether we agree with it or not. This is not the way God works. And so Abraham trusts that this God is somehow good and worthy of trust. There are things in all of our lives I think that we can say that God has asked us to trust him in from the littlest things like finances to how we live our lives to our sexuality to the way that we engage our city and neighbors. These are all things that God says he wants us, even forgiveness, forgiveness. If somebody has hurt you and God tells you, demands that you forgive them, that feels insane. Why should I ever forgive? But Jesus and God gives us these things for our good. And Abraham learns early on to trust God. And he does this multiple times. The third thing, of course, is to seek justice, to to love what's right, to do what's right, and to help set things right. God's people must be people who are marked by his ethical character. God cannot bring forth the kingdom of God with people who do not reflect God's actual ethical character. We must be people who love what's right, who do what's right, and then when things are broken, and they often are, we help set things right. And we learned about these two beautiful Hebrew words, siddakah and mishpat, my two favorite words. And we see this in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. When God comes to Abraham and tells his companions, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him and he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. This is what God says Abraham is doing, and this is one of the ways he will be a blessing to all the nations on the earth, not just through the Messiah, in the line of the Messiah, of course, but also because Abraham and the nation of Israel will reflect the very ethical character of God, to keep the way of the Lord in a world which does not know the way of the Lord, nor does it keep it, and to do what is right and what is just. This is one of the ways that God endorses Abraham. He says, he is a man who does what is right, and what is just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. We must be people who live and look, who love, what, love what's right, who do what's right, and help set things right. And then lastly, in the most terrible story that my friend David Kim came and talked about last week, David talked for 44 minutes on this. That's a long time. That's the longest sermon in this. I'm gonna beat it. We're gonna be out of here by noon, promise. <laughs> David thinks he can go longer than I, David. I will beat you. 
This is the story of Isaac. You remember this story, this terrible story, where God asked Abraham to kill his own son. And Abraham, the fourth lesson is that loving God means we expect God to be good even when life falls apart. And life will fall apart. I'm looking at all these young people here, so full of life. You may not believe that life will fall apart, but as the older saints in the room can attest, there will come a moment when life will fall apart and there is nothing you can do about it. Suffering is to be expected. Remember that moment when Jesus says, in this world you might have trouble? Oh no, that's not what he says, does he? In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, because God's good and he overcomes even the worst of evils. This is what God does. And Abraham trusts that God is somehow good and that even in the midst of this terrible command, which looks like God himself is negating his own promises, where God himself is undoing what God himself has said when, when the very pillars that hold up reality have come crashing down, Abraham still trusts somehow that God will bring good out of it. And of course, later on, we would see in this incredible story that God does provide. This is what it says. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. God himself will provide this beautiful phrase in Hebrew, Yehovah Yireh, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. Now, this was very early in the story. If you look at the Bible, it's like page 18. You know what I'm saying? It's very early. But this is a hyperlink, the first mention of a moment in the story much later where on that same hill, on that exact same hill, another son would walk up with wood on his back, the lamb that would take away the sins of the world. God himself would provide Jesus. And so that is the proof that we have, all the proof we need that God is good, even when life seems to fall apart. Of course, so much of Abraham's story ties and points to the person of Jesus. If you think about it, Abraham was an imperfect, a flawed and yet imperfect example of perfect devotion to God. Jesus, of course, would do all these things. Let's go through these. Was Jesus loyal an allegiant to God alone, even if it costs him? Did Jesus trust his father even when life didn't make sense? Did Jesus love what's right, do what's right, and set things right? And did Jesus expect his father to be good even when life fell apart? I think about the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. I trust you. Jesus is a perfect example of this. Abraham is the first kind of, if you think about it, Abraham's like the first kind of iteration, the Motorola Razor, right? And then there's this mosaic covenant trying to figure out how to give 613 commands to keep this. It doesn't work, and so Jesus comes with the iPhone 13. That's a dumb example. Please don't. Please don't hold me to that. Because there will be an iPhone 14. There's nothing better than Jesus. But my, you see my point, right? Jesus is the perfection of this. Jesus is perfection. He does this perfectly. And he not only does it perfectly as an example, but because of his work, we can now have new hearts. The Holy Spirit can indwell us. We can actually do this. Now, this is all beautiful and all important. 
But I want to call your, our attention to that final thing. <clears throat> Why does God do all this? I mean, from a macro story perspective, why does God do all this for Abraham? Why does he do all that he does? Think about all the ways that Abraham is changed, how his life is tremendously blessed or changed for the better because of the way that God moves and intervenes in his life. This is, his whole world has changed. In history, religious history especially, there's this moment where God says from here on out, how does God even identify himself when it comes to Moses? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He identified, God himself, his story is wrapped up in Abraham's story. And Abraham's story, of course, is wrapped up in his God. Abraham's story is defined by the God who did all this for him. And I'm not just talking about one thing. Think about all the things that God did. All the things. I mean, this is what this story is so incredible. There's so many different ways that God comes and does things for Abraham. God cleans up Abraham's messes. He calls him out of idolatry into a new land. He blesses him and gives him a child. He cleans up his messes when he makes mistakes. He goes to incredible lengths to bless him. This is exceptional. There's so many different ways. And that brings me to another word I want to focus on that's often misunderstood. Now, if love is a hard word to understand, and if love has been redefined now by these four different ways, at least this diagnostic helps me. I can now say to my child, I can say to my son and my daughter, let's look at the life of Abraham and then the life of Jesus in these four categories. Is there any place where your allegiance or loyalty is being taken over by something other than God. Check your heart. Is there a place where you need to obey God, to trust him, even if it doesn't make sense, and you're having a hard time trusting God? Check yourself. Is there a place where you need to do what's right or set things right? This will cost you, but is there something going on? Check yourself. And then lastly, when the world falls apart, when life falls apart, do I need to remind you that God's still good? And maybe it's not falling apart now, but maybe there's somebody whose life's falling apart and you need to remind them because later on your life will fall apart and you'll need that too. This love diagnostic is super helpful for me. It allows me to check myself to see if my heart is too small or in the words of Dr. Seuss, three stars is too large. How can I grow in this? It's a way to submit my life and to help my children see if there's something weird in their lives that needs some attention, some pressure points. But if the word love is difficult, there's another word that I think is very difficult for us to understand. And that's, why does God do all this? Now in the New Testament, the New Testament authors would use this word again and again and again. And I think it's, it's tied to the word love, but it's a little bit different. In fact, if you and I were to make a, a list of the five most important words in the entirety of the Bible, this word might make it, and it's the word grace. You know this word, right? If you're a Christian, you use this word grace all the time. In the Greek, it's the word charis. In fact, the word good gift in the Greek, you, meaning good in charis, eucharist, eucharist, you've heard that word, right? That's the bread and the cup. 
It's called the good gift because it's a symbol of what Jesus himself did. It's the good gift. Jesus himself, his blood and his body are the good gift. His sacrifice is the good gift. His life and his death and his resurrection. This word gift or this word grace, which is the same word, is used all through the New Testament to describe what God is doing. Now, when we use the word grace, it's kind of this weird word, right? Grace is a strange word, but the word gift is not. We know what the word gift is, and the word charis in the Greek is the word gift. It's the same word. The word gift and the word grace are the same word. So what is this gift that God is giving us? And as we look at the life of Abraham, and as we look at what the New Testament, I mean, obviously the life of Abraham is trying to tie us to the life of Jesus, the good gift that God comes into this world and he gives us good gifts. But not just good gifts, he gives us the very gift of himself. This is the greatest gift that Abraham has, God himself. So it's not that he gives us stuff, he does. He gives us air and life and provision, but the very best gift is the gift of God himself. That's the defining aspect of Abraham's story, that the very best gift that God gives him is himself, that Abraham's story is intertwined with God himself. And of course, Jesus, this is what Christmas season is about, Emmanuel, God comes to be with us, that God dwells with us, and then that Jesus comes and dies on a cross to eliminate all barriers to having God with us to forgive sin so that we can be with him now and forever. This good gift. But the problem is the word gift or the word grace is, it has as much weird baggage and as much confusion around it as the word love does. Just like we needed a better, more proper definition, an actionable definition to the word love, because otherwise it's too mushy and weird, we need to think a little bit about the word grace or gift. What is God doing? And the problem is we live in a culture, and I don't know if you know this, but there was this day, uh, Friday, apparently it was a pretty big day for gifts. And because we live in the 21st century, because we live in the United States, if we're not careful, our concept of gift will be wrapped up in that consumer buying kind of mentality. And that is entirely foreign to the ancient world. I don't know if you know this, but Amazon did not deliver in the ancient world. There was no Black Friday in the ancient world. And if we're not careful, when you think, no, so just do this with me. When you think about the perfect gift or a gift, what do you think of? You probably think of a thing. When I think of the best gift I ever received, I think about Christmas morning when I was five and I received this. This is a picture of me on Christmas morning. Those shorts are way too short. I don't know what my parents were doing. I received the Star Wars Death Star playset. I was five, it was over. This was the best gift I had ever received. When you think about a perfect gift, that's probably what you think of, a thing or an item. But the ancient world, gifts, they thought of it very differently. Let me give you a little bit of an example to show us and show you that there's a lot of distance between how, what we think of as gifts 
and what the ancient world would have thought of with gifts, okay? Okay, so before we go any further, we should probably get that picture off, and let's just go back to the perfect gift. Um, that's distracting. Let's just go back to the perfect gift. I want to ask you about this, okay? I want you to think in your head, when, uh, uh, of an, so what comes in your mind when I say this word? The earth. The earth. Think about the earth. 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 Students, adults, everyone, just think, earth. What do you think of? Okay, do you see what I'm saying? Okay, now, I'll tell you what I think of, and maybe we'll raise hands here. I think of this. This is a famous picture taken by an astronaut named William Anders in 1968. It's called Earth Rise. This hung in my father's study. My dad was an Air Force engineer and an Air Force pilot. My dad thought this picture was exceptional. This was the first color photo of Earth. This is what I think of when I think of Earth. Anybody else think of this? The solar system and Earth, the blue marble, remember? This is what they called it, Earth. This picture did not exist until 1968. Until 1968, no human had ever seen this. Do you see? When human beings thought about Earth, they did not think this because no one had ever seen that. That doesn't, do you see what I'm saying? It's completely foreign. If you and I went back to Abraham and we said, hey, think about the Earth, he would not think about this. He couldn't have conceived this. That he thought instead of land. Do you see? There's a difference between the way ancient people thought and we think. And we cannot impose our 21st century ideas on this. Sometimes if we do, it'll get weird. It'll get wonky. They didn't know what mercury was. Do you see? So there's a difference. So the point is there's a distance between how we think of gifts now today in our 21st century consumeristic society where we're all based on commerce and economic systems that are developed. And those things are wonderful. Amazon's incredible. Amazon Prime, all those things. But that's not what they're talking about. So let me give you some quotes from a guy named John Barclay who wrote a book called Paul and the Gift. It was a seminal work. He's a theologian, a New Testament theologian, who wrote this book kind of as his capstone of his life studies. And this is what he says. A modern Western dictionary tells us that gift means something handed over gratuitously for nothing. But even the slightest knowledge of antiquity would inform us that gifts were given with strong expectations. Indeed, precisely in order to elicit a return and thus create or enhance social solidarity. He continues, those of us brought up in the modern West are likely to be surprised, even shocked, by the gift practices of non-Western cultures today. We should expect a similar or even greater surprise when, when we encounter ancient practices and opinions. And he, he closes with this. Gifts in the ancient world were as important to national and personal destinies as commerce and trade, cementing relationships and driving treaties that made political, social, and economic stability possible. As commerce engines developed, gifts became less important. The idea in the ancient world is that gifts had all these different layers and facets. 
And what I'm going to do for the next just a few moments is show you how gifts were viewed in the ancient world. The reason why is because God comes to Abraham and gives him some good gifts, including the gift of himself. But if we're not careful, we will impart upon Abraham and God's good gifts modern sensibilities, and we will miss some things. Now, some of the things I'm going to share with you are things that you know and you've heard, but at least one, I'm fairly confident, will be a surprise, maybe even a shock. But this is all there in the text, and it's important that we get it. So, in order to illustrate the four different ideas or facets of gifts, I have four different illustrations. Diet Pepsi, cupcakes, candlesticks, and a wedding ring. All right, so, you're like, what? I will explain, and it will be very clear. So all you folks over here, when I point to you, I want you to say, Diet Pepsi, okay? One, two, three. Uh, uh, with some gusto, please. One, two, three. All right, you folks right here in the middle, when I point to you, I want you to say, cupcakes, okay? One, two, three. Cupcakes. That was good. See how it's done over here, balcony? All right, and over here, when you guys come up, I want you guys to say candlesticks, this whole area, right? Candlesticks. One, two, three. Candlesticks. All right, and then when I go like this, my, my, my arms wide, everyone says together, wedding ring. One, two, three. Wedding All right, let's practice. Ready? Yes, okay, now let me explain what this is. This is the four different ways that gifts were given in the ancient world and how they're good. Now, as we go through this, I don't want you to just think about gifts. I want you to think about the very good gift that Abraham was given by God, the very gift of God himself. So, Diet Pepsi. Now, let me explain this. When I was a young man, I lived in Hawaii for a hot minute. I was a missionary there, based in Hawaii, as you probably read in the book. And while I was there, my buddy Jason and I would go to University of Hawaii volleyball games. Volleyball is the national sport of Hawaii. Everyone plays it, everyone is good at it, it's amazing, it's the best sport. Anyway, there's this moment where we're at this UH women's volleyball game and they had a giveaway. And they said, if you fill out this little form and we draw your name, you can come down onto the court and if you make a basket blindfolded, you can actually win the grand prize. They didn't tell us what the grand prize was. So my buddy and I, we went out and we said, do you have any of these slips? And you were allowed to enter more than once. So we spent the entire volleyball game stuffing the ballot box. We filled out hundreds of these things. And then my buddy's name was drawn. And so he goes down on the court and he has all he had. Now he's an incredible athlete. His brothers actually played in the Olympics in volleyball. Um, and so he's there and he's blindfolded and all he has to do is make a basket. And what they do is they tie it around him, and so he kind of reaches up, he's very tall, he can feel the basket, he can feel the backboard, and just dunks it. Boom, we win, we win the grand prize, which was a five-year supply of Diet Crystal Pepsi. It was new. For those of you who are younger, if you don't know what Crystal Pepsi is, thank your lucky stars you live in the modern world. It came, delivered onto his house. Every three months, he would get a pallet of Diet Crystal Pepsi delivered on his driveway. A pallet, a literal pallet packed with, it was a can a day for five years. This is, 
that's way too much. At one point, he's calling out, can you please stop it? Please stop it from coming. This is the first way that God's gifts or gifts could be perfect. They're super abundant. They never run out. Just like God's goodness. Does God ever run out? Does his love ever run out? Does his goodness ever run out? Does his presence ever run out? It does not. It is super abundant. It never runs out. So one way that God's gift is perfect is the gift of? All right, next up we have? All right, let me explain cupcakes. When my son entered into kindergarten on his first day of kindergarten, his kindergarten teacher, a, a wonderful, incredible kindergarten teacher named Mrs. Sewell, as the kids entered into her classroom, she gave each one of those children whom she had never met a cupcake. And on top of the cupcakes were little cupcake toppers, like uh, characters, like Elsa or Han Solo. And my son's like, Han Solo! And he takes it and he's like, yes, a Star Wars cupcake. This is life. If this is what school is, I am in. I am here for this. <laughs> now, I don't know if it's a good idea to give a five-year-old or a six-year-old that much sugar on the first day of school. But regardless, what Mrs. Sewell was saying to each student is something incredible. I value you no matter who you are. I don't even know you, and here you go. Every single boy and girl got a cupcake. Some of these students would become incredible students that she would love, and others, <laughs> but did every kid get a cupcake? Yes, every kid did. Had they done anything to be good boys and girls to deserve the cupcake? They had not, which leads us to the second way that a gift could be perfect. Barclay calls it the gift of prior. It's given freely before you could ever do anything to earn it. Now, in the life of Abraham, we have seen that God operates this way, does he not? Did Abraham do anything to earn God coming to him as he pagan worshipped in ancient Mesopotamia? Did he do anything to deserve that kind of gift? He did not. God came to him before, prior, he could do anything to earn it. Again, God is always prior. While we, we, while, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Do we earn God's movement in our lives? No, we do not. He gives cupcakes to everyone. This is incredible, right? And those of you who know, who have received this cupcake, sometimes you know, I didn't deserve this. And if, if I'm honest, if God really knew who I was, if he knew how I would treat him, if he knew how fickle my heart was, I don't even deserve a cupcake. And yet God gives a cupcake to everyone. So, first, there's a gift that never runs out. And second, there's which is given freely before. And the third way that gifts can be perfect is candlestick. candlestick. Okay, that was weak. The third way is candlestick. All right, now for this, I was a former English teacher, so I have to use a literary example, okay? 
One of the longest and largest books I would teach in my AP English class, and one that I love the most, was a famous French novel by the author Victor Hugo called Les Miserables. Now, Les Mis, as it's called, as we did, there, it's based around this guy, the main character is Jean Valjean. Now, there's this incredible moment. If you've seen the, the play or the opera, or if you've seen the movie or the musical, you'll recognize this. There's this moment. Jean Valjean is in prison. He steals some bread to feed his sister and her kids. He's put in prison by the evil Inspector Javert, who punishes him excessively for this. He gets out, and as he gets out of prison, there is nowhere for him to go. It is snowing. He has no family anymore. He doesn't know where to go. He has no home, and it is snowing. He has nowhere to go. And he starts knocking on the doors up and down Paris, wondering if anyone will be kind to open their door to him. He has nothing. He is even shoeless. And he finally knocks on the door of a church, a, a church leader, a bishop, Bishop Bienvenu, who lets him into his house. And he spends the night there. And the bishop opens up his house for Jean Valjean. Now in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean realizes, I've got nothing. But on the way in, he saw that there was some silverware that the bishop had. So he takes a sack and he steals all of the silverware and then leaves. Of course, he is caught by the police in Javert several miles away. They bring him back to the bishop's house and in the morning there's a knock on the door and there's Jean Valjean in cuffs and the police have the bag of silver. And they say to the bishop, we've caught the thief. We've caught him. Do you want to press charges? Here's your stuff back. And the bishop does something exceptional. He says... Why, Jean Valjean, thank you, officers, for bringing him back to my home. Jean Valjean, you left in such a haste, you forgot to take the candlesticks and walks to the altar, grabs the candlesticks and puts them in the bag and says, thank you, officers, for getting Jean Valjean back here so I could give him the candlesticks that he forgot. And in this moment, the officers are like, what? And Bishop's like, Yep, you guys can go, and Jean Valjean, you can go too. And Jean Valjean stands there, mouth open, and Bishop looks at him, and he says this thing to him. He goes, Jean Valjean, I have just bought your soul for God. Go and live a life that is good. And in that moment, this is another word that we use, that uh, Barclay uses, and this is the word incongruity a gift to someone who does not deserve it. It's not just that it's like a cupcake given before you could earn it. It's given to somebody who is actively disqualified from even getting the gift. And this is the story of Abraham, is it not? He's in Mesopotamia in Ur of the Chaldeans doing lunar worship. His family is deeply ensconced in idol worship. God should not go to a man like that. And yet, God finds him. And just like the bishop says, here's some candlesticks. Gives Abraham gifts that he couldn't possibly deserve. This is the third way that gifts are perfect and God's gift is perfect. And the final way, I wanted to say this. So first of all, there's the superabundance. And then there's given before you could earn it. And then there's given to people who don't deserve it. And finally there's 
Okay, let me explain this. Sometime around 2002, I decided to make the largest economic purchase I have ever made. I went to a jeweler in San Francisco and bought a diamond, and then I took that diamond and took it to another jeweler and had them set it in a ring of white gold. This was the most expensive thing. This thing cost twice as much as my car. And I bought this ring, this incredibly expensive ring, to give to a young lady who I had met at church. Her name was Tracy Nicole. And I was from Ohio, and she was from Michigan. And I root for Ohio State, and she roots for <laughs> Michigan, because that's where she went. And one day a year, there is great sadness. But love conquers all. And I got down on my knee up in Shakespeare's Park, up in Golden Gate Park, up in San Francisco, and I said, would you marry me? And she said yes, and that was many years ago, and that ring was a gift I gave her. Now imagine she took that ring and said, man, this is awesome. This is worth so much money. And she went and pawned it and took the money and bought herself a convertible. Not like a nice convertible. It wasn't that big of a ring. I was a teacher. They're like, six months salary. That's how much you said. I'm like, so $400? Wow. Thank you. All right, there it is. Imagine, though, she took that wedding ring and just pawned it. Said, thanks for the money. That was awesome. What? The gift was given without conditions, right? Come on, it's an unconditional gift. You said so yourself. Is that really what that ring was about? Is that ring just a, hey, here you go. Here's something of value for you to do with as you wish. No, the point of the wedding ring was to cement the relationship and the future. Do you see? It would be like a, a father going to his son and saying, I have built this business, oh son of mine, and you and I both love this business, and I'm giving you this business and the son saying, thanks, dad, and then selling it and take the money and retiring to Fiji. Is that the point of the father's gift? No, the point of the father's gift is to say, son, we have built this together and now we can labor in this joy of this business together until it is time for me to stop working and you can continue on. There's all sorts of things going on in this gift. It cements the relationship and it cements the future. The word that Barclay uses here is this gift is effective. And this is the way that Christians do not talk about the very gifts of God, but one of the ways that is critically important to realize. God gives good gifts to cement futures to change us, to bring us into a relationship with him like a wedding ring. When I gave Tracy Nicole Cosma, the University of Michigan grad, that ring, <laughs> I was saying to her, you and I forever, every day of our lives. It was to create something, a new thing, there was an expectation of response. Do you see? And this is where we lose sometimes our ideas. The author Christopher Wright put it this way. I'm gonna close. Wow, I'm really over, sorry. This is really deep stuff, I love this. Here's the final quote from Christopher Wright, who, whose uh, 
book, The Mission of God, really helped me understand what God's doing. It says, on one hand, God's initial choice, address, command, and promise to Abraham were all unconditional in the sense that they did not depend on any prior condition that Abraham had fulfilled. They emerge out of the unexpected and unmerited grace of God and out of God's undaunted determination to bless the human race of divided nations in spite of all that has thwarted his goodwill so far. And yet, on the other hand, there is an implied conditionality in the very form of the foundational address in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Everything hinges on the opening command, get yourself up and go from here to the land I will show you. The subsequent statements about God blessing Abraham, magnifying his name, and multiplying his progeny are all predicated on Abraham actually getting up and going forth. Bluntly put, if Abraham had not got up and left for Canaan, the story would have ended right there or with an endless recycling of the fate of Babel. The Bible would be a very thin book indeed. Now, right is being facetious here. The, the Bible's story would not have ended with Abraham. God would have found another covenant partner. But the whole point is that God is looking for faithful covenant partners to put a ring on, to bind together, to live forever. In other words, in the words of one of my favorite authors, some gifts are so good they demand a response. I said that. That's in my book. I'm quoting myself. But this is true. Some gifts are so good they demand a response. That's the whole message of Abraham's life. God comes and does something so exceptional that it changes the entire life of Abraham. God is looking for faithful covenant partners. And as we leave this series and as we leave this book and as we go into Christmas, as we go into this season, this is all I tell my children, this is all I tell my heart, this is all I tell my church, this is all I have to give to you. God is looking for faithful covenant partners. Would you please respond? Not just a little bit, with the entirety of your life as if God himself were presenting not only a super abundant gift that never runs out, not only a gift that was given to everyone before they could earn it, not, every, not only a gift that was given to people who did not deserve it, but a gift that was given in all those things in addition to change and transform us into people who see who God really is and who respond in like with the entirety of our lives. That is what this call of God is. It's not just about eternity. It's about here and now and forever. With every breath of our body, every ounce of power in our lives, every bit of our story given to God, written with God, intertwined with God from now until eternity. That's what this story is about. And that's the invitation that was made to Abraham. But most incredibly... That's the offer that God is making to you and to me. Let's be changed by it. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of Abraham, not just for what it shows about Abraham, but for what it shows about you, God, how beautiful and good you are, how patient you are, 
how long-suffering you are and how good you are. I pray that we would be changed by it. I think about the young people in this room, junior high and high school, who have incredible choices ahead of them to live their lives one way or the other. I pray that they would make a decision like Abraham to be a faithful covenant partner every day of their lives. Would you, would you help them with that? I think about the moms and dads in this room who have a difficult task ahead of them trying to raise their kids. I pray that they would make this decision and help lead their children in this way. I think about the older folk in this room who have lived this. I pray that their example would only burn brighter in the days and weeks ahead of their lives. Thank you for this church. Have your way in it and help us live lives like Abraham, responding to the radical devotion of you, O oh God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.